Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. It's been a while since we last spoke. Can I say that? Since we last spoke? There's no we in this. Since I last spoke to you. I'm your host, Andy Humphrey. This is episode 154. You might notice that I sound a bit under the weather today. That's because I've caught a cold. (laughs) Though I lost my sense of smell last night, which is kind of funny. I'd never lost my sense of smell before. I don't think it's COVID. Uh, My smell came back in the morning. I just think I was uh, super congested. But um, anyway, the last few weeks have been a whirlwind of travel from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas to Calgary for a significant irrigation association event. And then I went directly to Europe for a week with my wife to the uh, southern coast of France, Monaco, Nice, Marseille, Marseille, Marseille. Uh, Menton's just a fantastic part of the country. I was blown away. Uh, We stayed a couple days in Menton, and they have over 300 days a year of sunshine. Just absolutely fantastic. So anyway, I got home, and the very next day, I started to feel sick. So just just been running ragged, I guess. So anyway, despite this, I'm eager to kick my ass into gear again and start producing some more content and get back to regular updates and uh, regular communication with all of you again. And I appreciate your patience and really look forward to sharing my thoughts again uh, more on a regular or on a more regular basis. Let's see. If you are a regular listener, you probably know. Actually, some of you have already given me some crap. You might have noticed my absence. It's been since Friday, January 5th, since I last released an episode. And it's just really because life has been happening fast and hard. I've been incredibly busy. And today I thought I would do something a little bit different because I, again, I'm under the weather and I I don't really feel up to recording anything at length because of that. I'm loaded up on DayQuil. I shouldn't say loaded up. That makes me sound like I'm abusing DayQuil. I have the the prescribed amount of DayQuil on board. (laughs) So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to play a recording for you of the keynote presentation that I gave for the Canadian Prairie Chapter of the Irrigation Association in Canada a couple of weeks ago. I was invited to their annual conference to give a presentation. And honestly, I had to I had to actually think hard about what I wanted to to talk about. I think being in a position of sales-ish in my my entire career, it's very easy to get up in front of somebody and do a training event. Very easy to teach somebody how something works and talk about features and benefits. But I think that sometimes those concepts are kind of fleeting. Nobody wants to hear about you know, feature, feature, feature. Those types of presentations are here today, gone tomorrow, just blow away in the breeze. And I really wanted to give something a little bit more substantial and something that could live longer, uh, that would outlast any sort of form of this new feature or this form of technology or, or something else. And so 
I had to think really hard. And what I decided to do was to um, kind of tell a little bit about my story. What truly motivates me? Why am why am I doing what I'm doing, including recording this podcast? So instead of talking about products and features, I chose to share a little bit about my journey in irrigation, you know, why, why I chose this industry, which is also kind of interesting, why I chose this industry, because indeed it was a choice that I made, <laughs> even despite kind of the the common jokes that you hear, which is nobody intentionally enters this industry, right? I think everybody's heard that before. Nobody gets into this industry by choice. They just un- end up here because of family or they needed a job, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, for me, it was a it was um, a deliberate choice. It, I, I actually made the decision, I'm going to get into the irrigation industry. And I think you'll hear a little bit about this in my presentation. And that was because I was, before I was focused on the landscape industry, landscape design, landscape architecture. And I decided to pivot not long into my first job. I pivoted, I would say, almost right away into this irrigation industry, and that was in 2002. So for me, it was a deliberate decision, unlike the common jokes that nobody gets into the irrigation industry. So because I was, I guess, intrigued early on by the fact that sprinklers operated based on a schedule, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 a.m., I wondered why there wasn't better technology to guide the application of water in the landscape. It just seemed like we were in 2002, we were using Google. Like there was amazing technology, yet here are, the, here are these sprinklers coming on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 a.m. And I just thought to myself, holy cow, there is going to be some serious innovation happening in this industry. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that innovation. So that was kind of my guiding principle. And uh, uh, it's what I've been doing ever since. So that's what I decided to speak about in Calgary. And it was very refreshing because I think that this, although this was the first time I've given this speech or this presentation, I think there's a lot I can build off of. And I'm really excited to give another modified version of this coming up in a couple of weeks uh, in, again, in Canada, ironically, in Ontario. So I guess that... Um, what are we, I don't know, six minutes in here to my ramble that I wasn't planning to do. So I guess without further ado, I'm excited to share with you my keynote presentation. And before we dive in, I'd like to extend a special thanks to everyone in Calgary that I had the pleasure of meeting, especially the entire board of directors of the local irrigation association, i.e. the Prairie chapter, the Canadian Prairie chapter of the Irrigation Association. I think that they have built a fantastic community, and I was generally impressed by the entire level of interest and curiosity that everyone showed towards the topic that I presented. And I don't, I can't say if there's a difference between Canadians and Americans, but I definitely really appreciate all of your, all of the curiosity that is coming 
from Canada. It is just contagious, and I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to speak at your conference. So thank you for your patience the last couple weeks. Here we go with this week's episode and my presentation to the Canadian Prairie Chapter of the Irrigation Association called Water Wonder, Unleashing Curiosity in Irrigation Innovation. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old-school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Okay, everyone, we're going to get started here. My name is Miles. I'm here to introduce our keynote speaker today. Uh, his name is Andy Humphrey. I've been following Andy for two to three years now. I really like what he's about in the industry. I believe he elevates the industry. He has a podcast I became familiar with quite a few years ago called The Sprinkler Nerd, which I listen to quite frequently. I'm a huge admirer of you, Andy. You elevate the industry. I like you tons. He's also a serial entrepreneur. He started off uh, a sprinkler supply store online in 2010. So yeah, he's got an online store in the States, but he doesn't have sprinklersupplystore.ca. So we have to work on him, make sure he ends up starting that up at some point up here in Canada. So I guess, uh, can we give Andy a huge round of applause and uh, welcome to Calgary. All right, we'll do another quick mic check. Can everybody hear me? Can everybody hear me? Kyle, how we doing? Good? All right, as Miles said, my name is Andy Humphrey, and for the last 20 years of my irrigation career, I've been essentially working to solve a problem. There's a problem that I noticed 20 years ago that I've been curious about, that I've been looking for this answer for, for 20 years, and it probably is similar to problem that you guys are likely asked on a regular basis. So to start out, what I would like to do is have you just get out your phone, your notepad, you know, write down um, in a moment, you know, the answer to this question that, uh, that I'm going to ask you. And for the irrigation experts, it probably seems very obvious. Okay, so it may or may not be obvious, but it's something that I've been searching for for 20 years. And the question is, drum roll, well first, is there anybody that would like to guess what question I'm going to ask? <laughs> Where's all the money in your Where's all the money? <laughs> so the question I'd like to ask you, and this comes up a lot for me, or variations of this, when I talk to somebody in the public who really doesn't know anything about what we do. Let's say somebody that I'm sitting next to on the airplane, and I tell them that I'm in the irrigation industry, and I'm into technology, and you know, first thing they want to ask me is, how long should I water my lawn? Okay, so that's my question for you today. That's the question that I've been searching for for a long time. How long to water your lawn? So just take a minute, uh, think about that, write down an answer, write down something on your phone. You know, what, how long should you water your lawn? And like I said, it could seem very obvious, but at the same time, it's not so obvious. And my story with this question 
goes back to my first job at Chapel Valley Landscape Company, just outside Baltimore, Maryland. And I was there, uh, I was hired there as what you might call a CAD jockey. So I was fresh out of college, I did a degree in horticulture, landscape design, and they thought I knew AutoCAD. I only knew AutoCAD enough of what they teach you in school, but quickly learned what I needed to know. And I was a, the CAD jockey. They didn't, their landscape architects were still doing drawings by hand, so I would take their hand drawings, convert them over to CAD, you know, build the CAD infrastructure and all of that. And on my first day at that job, I met an irrigation salesman. An irrigation salesman's name was Paul Bassett. And if you listen to the podcast, I have Paul on quite frequently. He and I have been almost best friends ever since my first day at my first job. I wasn't in irrigation, but as soon as Paul knew that I knew CAD, he quickly just grabbed onto me, put an irrigation plan in front of me and said, can you, can you draw this too? And sure, it's just a drawing. I can convert it to CAD, no problem. And then when I started asking him, like, why do you want me to do this? He said, because all my, no, none of my competitors do this. If I go to the client with my bid proposal and I have a CAD drawing that you've done for me, I know that I can win that project, more or likely win that project, because nobody else was doing it. And that was easy for me. So I did that, but I didn't know why I was putting one sprinkler you know, here, or five on this zone, or one inch pipe here, inch and a half pipe here. I was just doing what I was told, but I really liked what I was, really liked what I was doing, and I really liked the different facets of the irrigation industry. And I was young, and this was my first job. And I felt like, man, there, there, there might be an opportunity in this irrigation business. And so Paul started taking me along with him to visit with clients, look at systems. And then he had a handful of what you might call side jobs, you know, friends, family, relatives. And he would start up their systems, winterize their systems, help them on Saturday and Sunday. And he would take me along. And I don't know if it was morning or evening, I just remember it being dark outside and I'm riding with Paul in the front seat of his truck and it's raining outside and we're rolling up to one of his client's houses and the sprinklers are on and I know nothing. I know nothing other than the sprinklers are on and it's raining and I start asking Paul these questions like, why do the sprinklers, why are the sprinklers on? Well, how do the sprinklers know if it's time to come on? Well, how do they know if it's time to turn off? And there really wasn't a good answer. The answer was just, because it's Monday and it's 7 a.m. <laughs> that was the answer. I thought to myself, man, we've got Google, we've got the internet, we've got tech, why, why, is this, why are these sprinklers just coming on because it's the right time? Paul wondered the same thing. We were like you know, two peas in a pod. We both saw better opportunities and you know, ever since, we've been you know, working down this path of trying to understand what would be the best way to do something. And so when I ask you the question, how long should you water your lawn? That's the question that I asked myself 20 years ago, and I still ask myself. And we're going to be taking a closer, a closer look at that here today. So that's when I became curious. And you can go ahead and play this, Kyle. So legend has it that in 1665, Isaac Newton formulated his gravitational theory after watching an apple fall from the tree, and it fell straight down rather than sideways or upwards. 
Okay, so that's the legend, that's the gravitational formula. He had his, I wonder why, you know, in that scenario. And I, you know, asked myself, why did it take until 1665 for someone to have that thought? You know, someone had to have had that thought before. You toss a rock and it goes down, doesn't go sideways. Why did it take so long for someone to ask that question? Even though 1665 was a long time ago, it's not that long, you know, when you think of the entire history of the planet. And it might just be that either nobody asked the question or nobody asked the question and then took some action to try to figure it out. And so part of being curious is asking questions. And then part of being curious is to do a little bit of experimenting, to try something, right? To try something new, to see what happens. So I'm going to show you this picture here. And I'd like if anybody is brave enough to tell me what we're looking at, I would love some suggestions from you guys. Got two batteries. Yep. Yep, so this becomes 24 volts. So now I'll zoom out to show you the bigger picture. I'm showing you this so just you can think. I wonder, wonder what we're looking at. So let's zoom out, okay? So I mentioned that part of being curious and taking the next step is to experiment. So I'm a big believer in trying new things, experimenting. And what you'll see in this picture is yes, two batteries are powering this controller, not because that's the way it was designed, but because this site had no power initially. And the contractor said to me, I can either buy you know, 40 battery-operated modules. And I said, well, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's do it this way. So that's why the batteries are there. But what's most important about this image is that you'll see here, this is a baseline two-wire control board inside a Toro Sentinel controller. And this is 2004. Okay, so in 2003, four, when Two Wire was coming out, I found this amazing company called Baseline. I was working for a Toro distributor at that time because Sentinel was just coming out. And Toro didn't have any Two Wire stuff, but I figured we could probably make something work. So we put the engineers together and sure enough, this baseline module plugs in back up to the controller, and the controller can operate the zones right from the baseline module. And what's so interesting now, uh, and actually, let me ask you, how many people have heard of the brand baseline? OK, so half, two thirds. At this time, baseline did not have a controller. This little module here actually plugged in serial port to a computer. There was no field units at all. The entire software package ran on a computer. So they, didn't have any, they didn't have any field controllers. So it was almost like Baseline kind of needed a controller to put their product into. So we actually had to program this with a laptop. And the reason I show this to you is because it's important to experiment, to try new things. Right? If you're curious and you're trying to solve a problem, you're trying to learn, you're trying to grow, it's okay to, to try new things. And I believe that curiosity, curiosity leads to experimentation. And maybe I should say, for the brave, <laughs> curiosity leads to experimentation. So I'd like to also show you another example of you know, experimentation, if you will. Let's go ahead and play this. 
Oops. This is a well-known athletic field. I'll mention it in a moment. Anyone like to call out what stadium this is? Oh, now you know. <laughs> Green Bay. And uh, this is a baseline 3200 controller right down on the sidelines at uh, Lambeau Field. And Green Bay totally loves love their technology. And I was there doing some training. And I thought, you know what? I'm here. I should just update your firmware for you while I'm here. So I download the firmware onto a USB drive, stick it in the controller, update the controller, and then guess what happened? Bricked. <laughs> but of course I had a backup, so I got it back online. Actually, just kidding, that I did not have a backup. That's like rule number one, right? When you upgrade something, do a backup first so that you're safe. I didn't have a backup of, of any of their programming. So I was there to do training, and I ended up you know, spending two or three hours fiddling around with the controller, contacting support, finally got it working, but they were, for lack of a better word, on my ass because they were about to rip up the field the next day to lay, you know, put new sod down, and you know, my ass was kind of on the line. And I say that because sometimes when you experiment, it doesn't go the way you want it to go, right? Half the time, things don't work out the way that you want. But you have to stick. You have to stay in there, stick it out, and uh, you know find your find the solution. So that's how my day ended up uh, in the pressure cooker on the field at Lambeau, trying to fix their irrigation system. And of course, we can't leave Lambeau without some sprinkler porn. So let's play this video just for fun. Got to see some sprinklers in action, right? Yeah, soup can, right? Okay, so here is a, this is actually really interesting. And I came across what I'm about to show you about a month ago. This is a list of some job skills and I'll read them for you in case you're in the back and you can't see. Pipe installation, system maintenance, troubleshooting, repair and replacement, reading and interpreting blueprints, joining pipe and fittings, code compliance, customer service, problem solving, cost estimation. Do any of these job skills sound familiar? Can you guys relate to some of them? Can, is there anyone can relate to all of them? Awesome, Nick, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. Can can definitely relate to a lot of them. What particular job do you think these skills describe? Irrigation. Mm-hmm. Any other guesses? All right, I'm going to flip to the next side. Pump stations. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's actually the skills of a plumber. <laughs> and you'll see why I mentioned this, but those are the skills of a plumber. However, they're pretty much exactly the same skills of an irrigator. When you look at them just for the skills that are listed. And I got this information by asking ChatGPT, provide me with a list of the skills that a plumber performs in their job. 
And that's, there may have been two more, but that was the list that, that it gave me. And then I asked the same question, but I said, give me a list of the skills that an irrigation contractor does in their job. And it gave me the same list, but there was one job skill that was different. Okay, I'll blow it up for you. One job skill that was different, soil and plant knowledge. Right? That was the one thing that was different between the skills of a plumber and the skills of an irrigator, soil and plant knowledge. Understanding how different soil types and plant species affect irrigation and system design. And what's interesting about that is that we all kind of know that, right? We're there to water plants. But I feel like when we look at where we spend our time, where we focus our time, it's not always, it's not always on that. Sometimes we think that the turf care provider and the landscaper, they're more the plant expert. Yet when we look at the difference between the plumber and the irrigator, you know, this is really what we need to know a lot about because this is a differentiator between, between the traits. So I would like to propose this. <laughs> this is where the money is, right? <laughs> I would like to propose that plumber versus irrigator is easy versus hard. You know? Easy to be a plumber, hard to be an irrigator. But we could say, no, it's harder to be a plumber because you have to have certifications and anyone just can't be a plumber and you got to go through all this schooling. But plumbers don't have to learn about plants and soil. If a plumber wants to, if somebody asks a plumber, I want, how do I reduce my water consumption? All the plumber has to do is switch out the toilet. You go from a five liter per flush to a three liter per flush or whatever they are here, and you're immediately reduced your water usage just by switching the fixture, right? You can, you can change out the, the sinks, the showers, the toilets, and you can immediately have water reduction, but it's not that easy in the landscape industry or in agriculture or just as an irrigator. It's not just switching one sprinkler to another or one nozzle to another. So then we can ask ourselves, well, what is smart? Because we see smart in our industry everywhere, right? Everything is smart. And everything is smart, I guess, not just in the irrigation industry, but all over the place, they're smart. So smart could be head-to-head -head spacing, right? That, that would be smart. Smart could be hydrozoning. It could be using match precipitation rate nozzles. It could be using MP-style rotating nozzles. It could be adding pressure regulators, pressure regulating valves, pressure regulating sprinklers, ET-based controllers, right? What is smart, when you look at all that, it can get complicated really, really quickly. <laughs> and we see a lot of what I, might, what I might call noise, so much noise. Every manufacturer has a claim and a this and a that, and this saves 20%, this saves 50%. If I switch out this controller, you can save up to 50% of your water usage. And it's kind of like, well, maybe, I don't know. You know, and as we search the answer of how, do you, what's the, how long do you water your lawn, where do you even start? So, and these are just some facts that I, or not facts, but statements I grabbed off these two manufacturers' websites, not meant for anything other than to just provide example. So here's an example. Raymond says, the high efficiency of the HEVAN nozzle allows you to shorten your sprinkler run times by up to 35%, saving you water and money. So does that mean if I put, 
if I switch to that sprinkler nozzle, I can drop my runtime by 35%? Maybe, just to, sometimes it's just noise, right? Hunter says, the MP rotator's unique design with multiple rotating streams is the world's most efficient nozzle with up to 30% water savings versus traditional sprinklers. Does that mean if I switch the nozzle, guaranteed 30% water savings? It's not like switching out the toilet or the shower head. It's not quite the same. And so if you looked at your system, and these you guys have probably had these same thoughts, if you switch the nozzles and you had pressure and you use an ET controller, is the savings more than 100%? Because every, every claim has a percentage, right? And so then at the end, you're like, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> and how do you explain that to the client? How do you... It's just, there's so much noise out there. How do, you, how do you cut through it? Other than what I would say is to be curious and try to understand what it is that they're saying and if what someone is saying actually applies to the project that you have at hand. So going back to the question that I haven't found an answer to yet, how long should you water your lawn? I think there's more to it. Right? I think that in addition to how long should you water your lawn, your lawn, there's one more question that goes with that, and that is when should you water your lawn, right? Because there's how long, but then when. And so those two things go together, right? We have to kind of think of it together. When and how long. How long is a duration, you know, runtime. When would be more like a day and a time. And so what I'd like to do is transition a little bit into looking at some, some data. What we're looking at here is a, uh, it's a real soil moisture graph, but it's also generic in nature, meaning it looks good. You can see moisture going up, you can see moisture going down. This is a period on this particular site from August 10th to the end of August. And we can see here how we can define when, being day and time, how long, meaning you know minutes. And if we look at this, we say, oh yeah, I see irrigation event, one, two, three, four, five, six. And if we were just looking at the moisture, that might look like that was irrigation events. But let's overlay the rainfall. <laughs> so these blue bars represent rainfall, okay? It, almost looks like every moisture event was a rain event, but there's one here that does not have a rain overlap, right? So if we were looking at the data you know, remotely and we had rainfall, we would see that either somebody got a hose out on this day or the sprinklers came on, right? When, we, when you think back to what I've mentioned about all the percentages and nozzles and switching the controller and head-to-head -head coverage, you know, I like to ask the question, if it were easy, what would it look like? Right? If there was an easy answer to how long or when should you water your lawn, if it were easy, what would it look like? Well, let's look at some things that I've been experimenting with the past couple of years. This is, this is actually my friend and mentor, Paul Bassett, that I met on my first day at my first job at Chapel Valley Landscape Company. This is Paul in Hawaii on a project that we are working on. And we were kind of calling this a smart valve setup. You can see through, 
through here, there's a Netafim hydrometer. And this is just an AVB valve. And at this particular Air Force Base, there's, all, there's these, these uh, connection points all over. No wire, no power. It's just an AVB with a battery-operated valve. So we have a Netafim hydrometer. We have a uh, pressure uh, transducer actually wired into the port on the Netafim hydrometer. And then we have a wireless smart valve actuator. And then we have a, a wireless soil moisture sensor. So on this one valve, we have flow, pressure, soil moisture, and valve actuation. And what this allows us to do is see the data you know, in Hawaii. We can look at it anytime we want. We can see all the data. We can see how the system is operating. And I, would, I guess I'd like to ask you if it was easy, you know, maybe it would just be keeping, as long as the moisture's in this area, we're all good, right? If, if we told AI to do it, and we just said, your job is to keep the moisture anywhere in here. We don't care. Just don't let it go below the red too far. And if it's above the blue, now we're in saturation. But really, if it was easy, just use whatever tools you need to keep the moisture in that, in that range. Then maybe they answer the question of how long should you water. There is no answer. It's, as long as we're in the sweet spot, we're good to go. <clears throat> so I'd like to overlay some additional data on here just to give you some more perspective on what we're looking at. These are the run times. You can see two 10-minute cycles here, one 10-minute cycle here, 15-minute cycle here, two 10-minute cycles, one 10-minute cycle. And again, we're, we're trying to use automation as an experiment to keep the moisture in this, in this profile. And it seems to be working very well. And when we overlay the rainfall, it, help it helps to explain gaps in the data. Right, So these blue bars represent a rain event. And this is time between waterings. It finally dipped below the red, so we watered it up. Dipped below the red, so it watered up. And then it happened to rain right after this one. But then here, you can see how many days it went in between. And yes, we are looking at December. But again, this is Hawaii. It's warm. There's still evaporation, uh, evapotranspiration happening. I kind of like to think of this as just being the sweet spot. Finding, finding the sweet spot, and without having some sort of a tool to look at remotely, i.e., in this case, a soil moisture sensor, you don't really know if you're, if you're in the sweet spot. You know, ET can calculate how long something should run, and it can try to calculate when it will get dry, and sometimes it might be right, but it won't ever really know because there's no tool you know, down in the ground determining if we're in the, in the sweet spot or not. So what I like to do is that's all looking you know, very detailed, like down in the weeds, right? Down in the soil, <laughs> very detailed. But not all projects warrant that that you guys might work on. Sometimes you have to take a bigger, a bigger uh, perspective and a, uh, look at things from a, a bigger vantage point. And so let's say, for instance, um, Teague. <laughs> let's say that the city of Calgary comes to you and they say, we have a $10 million budget. We need you to, we'd like you to help us look at all of our parks and figure out where we can reduce water usage through a $10 million budget. You know, where would you go? What park would you look at? What would you do? Would you go and put catch cans out on every zone, right? And start looking at the DU? Would you look at what kind of nozzles? Like, where would you, where would you go to determine which sites have 
potential for savings and how to advise the client. And I think this is really important because certainly there's lots of new construction and on new construction, you can do the best that you can do by installing the right equipment and in putting in the head-to-head -head coverage and doing the right design. But as it relates to a retrofit, you know, is starting with the audit the right approach? An audit might need to be done, but if you have 100 parks, how do you know which park you're gonna audit first? Which one you're gonna do last? Which one has a savings potential? Which one doesn't? So I wanna point out a couple things that, uh, that Paul and I have, I shouldn't say figured out, but kind of tried to cut through the noise on, let's not talk about nozzles and spacing and any of that yet. <laughs> That'll come later, but if somebody were to come to you with a portfolio or even just one project, you know, these are some of the things that we think you should be looking at on the project and the first thing is looking at their consumption, the water bills. Granted, not every irrigation system has this either. <laughs> but start with the water bill, and you want to be looking at, I think, cubic liters here. Does that sound right? Okay, get the water bill. And, and they may say, we don't have that. Well, ask again. <laughs> then ask, well, who might? Because you can usually get to the water bill, uh, but it may not be on your first request. Okay, and then the second part would be look at the irrigated area. Not the entire area of the park, just the irrigated area. Okay, what are the square meters of, of irrigated area? Then run a, run a calculation, just see how many liters per square meter is the park using, right? In last year, let's say, last growing season, how many liters per square meter was the park using? And then look for the outliers, find the anomaly. If you have 100 parks, there's certainly gonna be an average, right? Let's say that the average on all parks is 30 liters per square meter. And I don't know what it should be, I'm just using a number. If it's 30, meters, 30 liters per square meter, and you look at this list of 100 parks that you just calculated out and you saw one that was 80 liters per square meter, that would seem like an outlier, right? Why is this park using almost three times the amount of water as all the other parks? And you can't just say, well, it's a bigger park because we've broken it down to the square meter of irrigated area. So at that point, all parks should be kind of created equal because we're looking at kind of the density of the water. And so if you ran this for a client portfolio, you don't have to go to every park necessarily. You might over time, or you just start looking at the parks with the highest consumption per irrigated area, you know, finding those anomalies. So this is a text that Paul sent to me on March 26, 2021. And he says, I think I may have officially found my first million dollar leak. And I'm just like, you know, big time, can't wait to hear, million dollar leak. And what Paul found was kind of what I just described. He had a portfolio of parks, ran all the numbers. There was a bunch of outliers, and then there was one that was really an outlier, big outlier. And he went to the park. This is the park. Looks like shit. That's why they're redoing the irrigation system. <laughs> I took this picture. This wasn't the actual time that he went to the park. Just an example of the park. He went to the park, 
uh, later, you know, so we did the analysis from home, from stateside, then later went to the park, found the water meter, and the water meter's spinning, and he asks, you know, the park guys, can you guys turn off the irrigation? Can you guys turn off the water? And they said, the water's off. <laughs> and Paul's looking at the meter, <laughs> and the meter's spinning, but the water's off. So he knew right away that this park had a leak, and what's interesting about this park and why they didn't know it is that it's all volcanic rock in Hawaii. So somewhere there's a leak, and the water's just going right down and probably ending up out of the ocean. If this was clay, right, the site would be a washout, and you'd know, you'd know right away. So 2021 is when he discovered the anomaly. And it's not his position, he did mention it, but he's not directly working for the park. You know, there's a couple other parties involved. So it's not his job to go turn the water off. 2024, those, you know, it's still leaking. You know, at, at like 115 liters per minute. Three years, it's, it's still running. <laughs> I went to the park, this was in September, so I know the meter was running then. It's still running. And then last week, he sent me this video that one of his guys sent to him. And there's the water just gushing down into the ground. And they found this by accident. They were literally driving one of their trucks across the park and then it just poof, went down into the sinkhole. <laughs> so this is like an exaggerated example of an anomaly, but they're, they're actually out there. And so sometimes when we start looking down at the nozzle level and the catch can level, we need to step back and just go back to the water meter. How much water are you using? What's your irrigated area? Does this make sense? And then investigate further to figure out you know, why. Maybe, maybe one park was set to water every single day of the week, right? And that's why it was using too much water. And the same thing works in reverse. There's going to be some sites that use that way underutilized their water, that way under-irrigated. You know, maybe they had the controller off for two months and it was brown, but you're looking at it a year later. You're just looking at the water meter data. You don't know that they had the controller off. So there's going to be some sites where you can't actually propose savings to the client because they weren't watering enough. And so there's this, um, I don't know, to me it's just being curious about why, why and how can we save water on a site. But I don't think we can start by looking at the nozzles and doing an audit. I think we need to start by looking at how much, what's the consumption, and is that actually making, is that actually making, making sense? <clears throat> so, coming back around, <laughs> how long should you water your lawn? I'd like to propose that there might not be a right answer yet. <laughs> I always like to say yet because we can't say no because we just maybe haven't quite figured it out yet. There might not be a right answer yet because maybe we've been looking through the wrong lens and perhaps the technology required to help us figure this out hasn't actually been invented yet. You know, what does the future look like? How can the future, make it easy for us to answer this question. 
and I want to ask Craig Borland. Craig, are you in the room by chance? There he is. So Craig and I were talking last night. Let's see if he remembers. And <laughs> Craig, Craig told me that um, his, Craig told me what he what his grandfather said was his biggest mistake. Do you remember that, Craig? See if I let's see if I got it right. What did your grandfather say? Do you remember? Or I'll, I'll say since I've got the. Work with his best friend. And he didn't quite understand why somebody would want to buy a cheeseburger from their car window. We're talking about McDonald's here. Why someone wanted to buy a cheeseburger from their car window and how somebody might need a milkshake machine that makes five milkshakes at once, right? Because McDonald's was brand new, so nobody knew what the potential was. And it's easy to connect the dots looking backwards. It's easy to say, well, yeah, McDonald's just makes sense. You'd have to be an idiot not to see that coming. But when it's right in front of you, sometimes you can't see it. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And so I've kind of come to that realization. It's easy to connect the dots going backwards. So how can you connect them going forwards? And I think that the future doesn't really, it doesn't create itself. The future doesn't just happen. The future is created, right? It's created by people just like you in this room. Those who want to create the future get to create the future because it doesn't create itself. And so my kind of message to you all would be to be curious, my friends, to ask why, ask the what if questions. And to borrow a phrase from Reed Hoffman, things that seem totally nutballs 10 years later, it's just the way you do it. Thank you.